Welcome to the Judging More Than Just the Cover podcast. I'm Amber Gregg. I'm Kate Oda. I'm James Moore. And today we are going to be talking about the horror, psychological thriller, Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay. And this is a spoiler alert because we will be discussing this book in detail. So if you have not read the book, go read it real fast and then come back to us. We don't want to ruin anything for you. So what were your overall thoughts on this? Is she, is she not possessed exorcism type book? (laughs) It just made me sad. Like once it was revealed what was actually happening. I just got so sad for her and like, oh, her parents are still treating this like an exorcism. But she has schizophrenia and like really needs professional help medically and they're they're torturing her. I felt so bad. It was sad. It wasn't horror. It was like sad horror. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had a great experience reading this book because of the anticipation I had initially because horror is not my genre. I don't read horror. I don't go to see the movies. And when we decided, okay, it's October we want to get into the swing of things and I, I kind of saw it as work so as I'm going to have to you know dig a ditch but I was surprised as to how interesting this book was as far as how it was written the characters the reactions it was I wouldn't say that I would pick it up and you know as a choice for myself but I was surprised at how much I in, enjoyed the story itself and it was uh and there's a lot in there I, I, this is one of the, the books i wish we had the author sitting here so i could barrage uh, him with, with questions saying did you intend this did you mean that so yeah this is definitely one of those stories that was kind of ambiguous as far as the ending and what really happened what didn't happen and i think that's the point and I think it does work well in horror whereas I normally would be really upset about the questions that I still have but I think it works because when you feel kind of uneasy after finishing a book I guess that means that they did a good job in the horror genre just like Bird Box is the other horror really big horror book that I think of when I think of like an ambiguous ending, but still feeling satisfied because you never really know what the creatures or the monsters are. And that's part of what makes it so scary is it's like, ooh, it could be anything. And that's how I felt about this book. Like, I don't know what's scarier, someone being actually possessed by a demon or somebody thinking someone is possessed by a demon that's just mentally ill. And both are pretty horrifying situations. But what do you think was actually the truth because there's a lot of filters that are happening so one you have the reenactment filter which is changing what actually happened but then you also have things that are shifted just based on time and her recollection of it and then she's got this blog where she's reflecting on it as a different persona so that's changing how things are interpreted so there's many different stories so it's hard for us as a reader to know okay what is what actually happened so what do you think happened i mean once once she as an adult told the biographer i guess that it was schizophrenia i believed her because she was that that narrator was the most reliable she had no reason to lie about anything she'd had time to think about things she was an adult uh versus the child who was not given all the information, couldn't understand all the information, and the blogger who had to pretend like she didn't know all of this behind-the-scenes knowledge. So I, once she said schizophrenia, I, I believed her. Well, when that diagnosis came into play, you know, one of the things that I, I enjoyed about the book is the ambiguity. Like, we were talking about, and, and I know that that was by design, and that d- does bring the creepiness and uneasiness into this whole thing that you don't know for sure. The um, having the filter of an eight-year-old person r- driving the story, or someone remembering, you know, something from when they were eight years old, leaves a lot of room for did this really happen, or did they fill in the blanks with their own head? Because if it was one hundred percent totally accurate, what she was remembering as a child, where well, schizophrenics can't spider up a wall. Schizophrenics can't punch through plaster. I don't know if you ever tried, but plaster is not like drywall. Plaster is more like cement. So (laughs) if you're doing that, then that's demon power. Okay, but if it's something that was interpreted to the eight year old or or they were told or they imagined it over a span of, you know, years until they're in their early 20s, then all that is explainable by that diagnosis. And it's still a question mark as to whether it was real or not. 
I like to think that it was demon possession just for entertainment value in my own head. You know, just from the nostalgia of, you know, watching The Omen when it first came out when I was a kid and that sort of thing. That, that makes it really creepy. If it was schizophrenia, then it's not as creepy to me. It's not as scary. It's more sad like you were talking about. And that's not as good an experience. I would like to think for these imaginary characters who are not real people that it was real demon possession and that's what was causing her to be able to do those things because that whole scene with the whole blanket well schizophrenia doesn't do that you can't suck a blanket in like that you know (laughs) because your mind is imbalanced but an eight-year-old might remember something in that way well and that's where it gets confusing too because at certain points she admits to embellishing details Mm -hmm. and then she says that she's faking it several times she admits to mary that she wants her family to get the money from it so she's playing it up a bit and she's playing up like the the demon part of it but even before that happened she was doing wild stuff which is what had them bring in the priest in the first place so i don't know if it was her grand plan from the beginning to try to pretend like she was possessed or if she was just mentally ill and her dad took it that way and then she went along with it and she's like oh great this will help us i'm gonna go even further with this and really play it up but then they were saying like well how would she know all those details like during the exorcism and and come up with that stuff but i do believe that like a lot of the things were embellished like the spider crawl up the wall and some of the things that Mary was filming, she kind of said. And then the one scene in the basement, she claimed, she admitted that that she had made that up because she was just playing along with it. So it's kind of unclear. You know, at some points I thought, okay, she's really not possessed. Other points I thought, okay, maybe she really is. I don't know. But I but I guess you could say, is anyone ever really possessed? Because people do exorcisms in, in real life. Yeah. So is it that those people are just mentally ill and they, it, it, you know, schizophrenia maybe, but could also be like, you know, multiple personalities too, where these, you know, this character comes out. So yeah, I don't know. I really, I haven't made up my mind what I believe truly happened. I was off of the possession wagon like I said, the second schizophrenia dropped. And after that, I, when Marjorie said, like, oh, I'm just pretending, I thought this is her convincing herself, not her sister, that she's in control and that this is all just for the money when really she can't control it at all, but she's just trying to say she can. And mm. I, I agree. I think that when Mary was lying to the producers about things kind of embellishing. I think she probably embellished the crawling of the wall and didn't realize it. So now she's watched the show so many times with that reenactment in there that she's like, yeah, that's that's how it was. But really, that's not what it was. Like maybe she just got up on her desk and was clawing at the wall and Mary got a weird angle of it. But I, I was completely off the demon train. I, I didn't find it ambiguous at all, actually. No. But maybe it's because I'm so scientific that even, even when people talk about exorcisms in real life, I'm like, no, that person's just either that person needs mental health help or back in the day, like, no, that woman is just speaking her mind. Please let her go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I, I yeah. thought it was kind of a modern version of that where they used to just not understand. I thought it was almost like a callback to the Salem witch trials because this takes place right next to Salem. Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing where, like, maybe they're doing some things that are not normal by society standards or like a little off uh they're recluse but they get blamed for being witches and put on trial and some of them played it up like yeah i'm a witch and then others were like absolutely not and they were still being blamed for it so i kind of saw this as like like that like it's other people's fears being projected onto this this little girl and she really was i mean she she was a teenager but ultimately she didn't realize the consequences of what she was doing yeah. Well, it seems that if it was, if that was the case, and I'm still on the bandwagon of wanting to believe it was demon possession, just <laughs> just because, like, when you go to see the magic show at Vegas, yeah. you don't want to know how it's done. It's it's of course there's a logical explanation on how somebody levitates, but I don't want to know that. I want to see the levitation. I want to be fooled, right. and, and that's how I kind of viewed this. It was more entertaining for me to think that. But one aspect of the book, I guess, that kind of plays into all this, wondering if it happened or not and what's real, 
is how uh, Christianity and the Roman Catholic Church was shown in such a horrible light. And it's like, that's something I can appreciate being being a Christian myself, but having gone to Catholic school, knowing the people, you know, in real life that parallel the dad in the book, the people protesting outside. That's what was really horror for me is that those people are real and out there and they believe that stuff. And they think that they're doing things in the name of God and Christ where they're not. <laughs> if they would study their own religion, they would know that they're doing wrong. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I do think that religion played a huge role in this book. And and I'm not religious myself, so I can't speak on that. But it did feel like it was kind of stereotypical as far as the fanatical, born-again Christian who's like all in to this religion that he has now. And then you've got the priest that's just like... I've never seen an exorcism. I don't even know if they still do them, but it's exactly stereotypical what I think would happen <laughs> at an exorcism. And it was interesting because I felt like I've heard this story before, but that was also kind of the point because when she's writing the blog, she talks about how, oh, it's like the exorcism, it's like this movie, it's like this movie. So that's where it's like, okay, is this girl taking in movies that she's seen and that's playing into this kind of character that she's playing when she's acting like she's possessed whether she's doing it knowingly or or not like even the masturbation scene I've never seen exorcism the original one but it sounded like from the blog post that that was a similar scene to what happened in that movie so in the fact that they called it out is really interesting so do you think that she was she saw the movies and was like, ooh, this is what I can do, or was it just the mental illness? I think that this is where the reality show comes into play, which I thought was a really cool part of this narrative, was that there was this reality show, and so I think that really colored a lot of Mary's memories, and like, I actually didn't, when she found her sister, like, covered in blood and half naked on the bed, I didn't think it was masturbation because, like, why would there be blood? I thought it was, like, her first period? Or probably not the first period based on the amount of blood they were talking about? I so... thought it was blood because she was using a crucifix. Oh, I forgot that there was a crucifix in there. Which is so not standard sharp. equipment for no, that kind of activity. No, it's not standard equipment. Right, we... so be sharp? <laughs> I would think so. Maybe, or she did have her period and was and, doing that, yeah. so... I forgot about that. That, that to me, was like... It would, if I had seen someone doing that, I would not I might immediately think they're possessed by a demon. I would think that they're very disturbed and wanting attention for some reason. Yeah. Um, but they immediately, they're like, possessed. She's possessed by a demon. <laughs> she swore at me in the car. She's possessed by a demon. Like, oh, that's teenager. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, oh, I caught my teenager masturbating. She's possessed by a uh, demon. Like, like, okay, that's where the religion ties into yeah. it. <laughs> but with the crucifix, like, that's just, yeah. adds a whole weird... Yeah, we uh, we don't recommend using a crucifix for that purpose. <laughs> Disclaimer. Disclaimer. <laughs> Not the best option. <laughs> well, I like to think that, um, yeah, she, she was clued. She was a very intelligent girl and was clued into those movies and that sort of thing. So I believe that there were times when uh, Marjorie was kind of playing into things and other times when when things that might have been described by Mary maybe not 100% accurate but was accurate enough so that it it really did reflect demon possession because for those of us who study you know Christianity I'm Christian myself and know about these things I'm not saying that I'm I'm not a, I'm not an exorcist expert at all but um, there are demons in this world, and they try to do harm, and they only enter bodies by invitation. That's why people don't, <laughs> demons don't just jump into people without permission. It's not, it's not allowed, okay? But it's only done by, by permission. So at some point, if you're going to go along those lines, at some point, Marjorie was like, well, you know, I'm going to allow this to happen. And when she was explaining to Mary about, you know, Mary was kind of quizzing her. Well, how did we get to this? You know, you know, why, why are you doing this? How did we get here? And she was explaining how mom and dad were fighting that. And she pointed out her dad is the real problem. Mom and dad are fighting. We got these house troubles, whatever. So I'm kind of playing. And they all of a sudden are worried about me. So I decided to play along and see where this road goes. And of course, it went to demon possession because we got a dad that's like 
fire and brimstone, born again Christian thing. And that's a, another aspect of the book that I really like because it kind of followed the trope, but then it broke the rules because John was following actually the mommy role because the mommy is supposed to be, we can pray everything away. And, you know, if we just have enough faith, then, you know, this will be right. And the dad is supposed to be like, well, she needs a doctor, you know, be hardcore scientific. But they, but the author switched those roles. Yeah. But it was still stereotypical of that kind of story. So I, I found that part interesting. That was, yeah, that's a good point. And they had the mom as the breadwinner in the family, mm-hmm. too. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I was thinking about, there was one quote where Mary was talking to Rachel, the, the author, and she was talking about her, her mom and, like, why her mom would agree to do this documentary, reality show. And, and she said, I don't really know why. I think that maybe they made her an offer she couldn't refuse, like, money-wise. And they were in a tight spot, and that's why she finally agreed to do it. And Rachel said something along the lines of, like, well, that's not true. And, or, you know, that's not true. And and Mary said, that's the first time that Rachel has pushed back and accused me of not being forthcoming. Good for her. That's what she said. So that's when I was like, hmm, I don't think we can even trust the adult version of Mary and her story. Because she just admitted that she lied about that and possibly was lying about other things, too. Thank I think we have to take a combination of all the different stories. So what did you think about the blog persona? Clearly that was her kind of coping mechanism. And I think she probably made a lot of money off of it because she was living in a condo on the beach. And like they were talking about like how nice and probably expensive this house was. And it didn't, and she was really young. Didn't seem like she would have had, unless she was still getting money from the reality show. That's what I thought. Well, she said she was. Yeah. Was she? Oh, yeah, I forgot that detail then. Um, But this blog, (laughs) the voice was kind of funny because it is, you know, you know, fanatical blogging, the kind of voice you would expect. But it almost seems like she's got this obsession with horror movies and horror stories now. Like, do you think that she, that's her way of trying to understand what happened or that's her way of trying to keep the story of her family alive in the media and to keep profiting off of it? It might be a a way for her to stay connected to her family because they all died when she was pretty young. Like, that's the big spoiler. (laughs) They all died. Um, So it it might be that she keeps watching the show because that's all that she's got of them at this point. And so she will just analyze every bit of it. Like, was this mom being genuine? Or was this mom playing into, you know, this thing? Was this Marjorie being herself or was this Marjorie acting possessed that kind of thing so I think that's that's probably why in my opinion she was obsessed with it because that's that's her family that's how she gets to see them over over and over again obsessively it's yeah, not, it's not healthy <laughs> <laughs> and not seeing the true version of yeah what happened yeah well I saw those um, passages when it was the blog show as obnoxious I mean it was it was obnoxious to read that but it did have the nuggets in there that was necessary for this story, like uh, the synopsis of the show in comparison to all the movies and everything. That was needed. And I wish I could have just had, you know, some other way that that be done. But hey, the book can't be perfect. And for me, that's what brought down a, a little bit of a notch just the difficulty of reading it. I think it was just her cashing in. I don't know... Maybe you can uh, help me out here, but I'm not, I wasn't sure if it, it was ever said that the blog that she identified herself in the blog, like because with her yeah. book deal, she made an effort not to identify herself, make sure that they knew it, you know, wasn't you know she didn't use her real name. But in the blog, it's, it's I mean, is her name there? No, I thought okay. it was the opposite. I thought the book she finally was like, yeah, you can. This is me telling you the real truth. Whereas the blog persona was well, I was talking. Fake. I was talking about the book that she's. Writing. Remember, she talked talked about the book that she's oh, writing. I thought she was going to write for like a. Oh, I'm sorry, magazine. the magazine. Yeah, she. Yeah. Two, there's an online magazine she was writing for, but she used a different name because yes. she didn't want to be identified. Yeah, she used a different name for that. She used a different name for the blog, and that might have been the same name. I don't know. I think so. And yeah. then she was herself with the biographer. Yeah. And then I mean that would be, that would be I mean, necessary. Necessary, yeah. <laughs> but I think the reason why she did the blog in the in the first, I'm thinking it's mainly money motivated because even though she's getting residuals off of this show, 
we're talking about a show that had like what they what four episodes, even though it's like you know really quite crazy out there stuff, and people probably watching it a lot. It was um, it probably is bringing back some money, but not something enough for a beach house. She probably got. Well, I don't know if they had life insurance. I was about to say life insurance. Yeah, life insurance probably took care of, but but not the not the residuals. I don't think would be paying for that necessarily. So I don't know. I, I think her. It's, it's. I just got the feeling that her motivation would be less touching in family and more. You know, this is something to do. This is something that you know makes me relevant, and I get money out of it. How much money do you make from a blog, though? <clears throat> from not like, a lot. <laughs> 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 yeah, especially not a obscure one. I would, I would think there's probably some people that are still interested in her story. There's always like those ghost hunters and like demon hunter type fanatical people that are like really into all these stories. But that's probably it. That's really following story still especially someone who they don't think is even connected to it at all like if she had written it as herself then maybe some more people would be like oh real story but yeah so i one thing she said in her blog was that she made the reveal that john killed her family the dad killed the family so that's what i went on believing but then we find out at the end that it was Kind of Mary that did it. I mean, it was ultimately pressure from her sister. But who do you think is really to blame? So the sister said that the dad had planned to kill them with the the poison. But I was reading that that, and she, I think she said it that it could just be to clean mm-hmm. his cross. Right. That's that's what the chemical could be used for. So do you think that he had given up on his family and was going to kill them, or at least kill? her or was he just trying to clean or was it like who do, who do you think or is it all of them they're all to blame for the situation and what happened and they're all responsible i think that when marjorie was explaining to mary about she was doing she was really setting their dad up as a murderer and she came up with all those examples i think she was doing a little bit too much work in that area for that to to actually be the case and I really don't see his character as one where he would... I could see where he would be suicidal himself, given the situation and what was going on and how ineffectual all his faith and praying was doing to really solve the problem. I can see him taking the potassium cyanide himself and leaving the family that way. But I don't see him killing his whole family, you know, just as a solution to this problem. So I... I really didn't believe that train. As far as placing blame, I like to place blame on Marjorie slash Demon, depending on how you want to see this book, because she was the ultimate manipulator and all that. She knew how she handled the priests, you know, expertly, knowing exactly what to say, when to say, what the whole process was going to be about. She manipulated her parents to a T. She manipulated basically the entire situation throughout the book. So I think that she was the she was the mastermind that got the, the deadly spaghetti sauce done, knowing that her baby sister was going to be spared, because I think that the only person that she really had affection for was Mary. Yeah. But do you think she went into it knowing she was going to eat it herself? Because she told Mary that, oh, I'm not going to eat it. I'm going to pretend to be sick or whatever. But then she ended up eating it knowing that the poison was in there. So do you think that was her plan all along? And I think that yeah. was her plan all along. And I think that on some level, and this is me imagining things. This is me trying to play around with my experience of the book. She really wanted to end this horrible experience of having a demon inside her. And the escape from that is suicide in her mind. I'm going to take my dad and my mom with me because she sees her dad is, you know, broken and twisted and troubled anyway. I, what I can't explain, though, is, you know, dragging mom into it. I, I really, I really can't figure that one out. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I can see her taking the her and the, the dad out. And maybe if she took a big chunk out of one of them priests, she probably want to take one of them with her, too. <laughs> That was gruesome. That but. was that was hardcore. Yeah, um, yeah. I I believed the story that it was the dad up until it actually happened. Uh, just because I mean they laid out the evidence that like crazy dads do this all the time. Uh, so I was like, yeah, this guy would maybe take out his whole family. Not sure how Mary survived it the whole time until it actually we got to that point. And then I was like, oh, this is Marjorie. Uh, and of course, me reading it as like she's schizophrenic, I was like, it's the voices. They're telling her to murder. Occasionally that can happen. She spared her sister because of 
that affection for her, and she took herself out, maybe because the voices also told her to do that. So I read it as like a, a murder-suicide due to mental illness that really wasn't being treated properly, because they did stop taking her to the doctor once the priest stuff got involved, and once you're off the meds, your your brain can just go, go off in whatever direction and just take you down. It's like any illness, it can kill you, so... I, I, I thought she was gonna die when she jumped off the stairs. I thought oh, that was yeah. the end of her. Well, the way they described the, the layout of the house and everything, I knew a fall from, maybe it was like, I don't know, at most like 12 or 13 feet. Um, unless you fall in a special way designed to kill yourself, you probably, you're gonna be hurt real bad, but it's not gonna die. So I wasn't expecting that. But that is an excellent point that you bring up as far as the end of the, the traditional therapy and taking her off her mask because there was a comment that, that was made about that at the autopsy that she didn't have those medications cases in her system that they totally bought in on the whole exorcism deal seeing that as the answer and you can see that coming a mile away that was not going to work yeah so the exorcism scene mary talks about how later she noticed that there were some mechanics and like the drawer that was opening and all that stuff so who put that there was it the producers trying to amp up what was happening was were the producers kind of in cahoots like they they knew that she was faking it so they want they were working together and she was like yeah I'll play it up for you or they're just like whatever happens we're just gonna make it ten times crazier. I, I thought of it, this is gonna sound crazy, I thought of it like keeping up with the Kardashians. I've never seen an episode of it, but I'm, I'm rolling with that, where they're sort of just filming life happen, and then they edit it, and they add little things, and they like tell people, like, so-and-so said this about you, like, now be mad, where they amp up what would be happening to make it more entertaining than real life actually is. So I think the producers definitely were the ones who added all the extras and all the drama, but I don't think they were in cahoots with Marjorie because she kept being surprised by things. Like, she was mad about the thing in the drawer, and she was not gonna cooperate with certain things. So I think they were not in cahoots. I think the producers and the the one priest that got them involved, they were in cahoots. Like, they were paying him money to yeah. do what they wanted. Yeah, and they and the dad thought he was in cahoots with them, but he wasn't. That's, that's how I read it. Yeah, I, I totally agree with what you just said. Because except for the one camera guy that had a relationship with Mary, the, the whole TV group there had one question in mind. Is this good television? That's all they cared about. Is this going to be good on TV? They didn't care about Marjorie getting better. They didn't care about the family situation. They just needed to stay alive long enough for good television. And that's why they put in the mechanical drawer opening and closing, which is just straight ripped off from The Exorcist. And they they put statuettes in there. They put the cruci- they put the crucifix in that room. You know, they they hung it up in there. They they wanted that. The that same feeling. crucifix or a different crucifix. Maybe a different, maybe a different one. <laughs> maybe one with a plastic coating. <laughs> Rounded edges. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I love The Bachelor, The Bachelorette. And so it's the same thing where it's reality. It's not scripted, but I follow... This is another I'm ashamed to admit this, but I've, <laughs> I'm in a discussion forum on Reddit, subreddit for The Bachelor, and people are talking about like behind the scenes things and there's actually a tv show and i'm blanking on the name of it but it's exactly that where it's it's fake but it's about a reality show and about what the producers do in behind the scenes to kind of manipulate things and that's totally what they do on the bachelor and i'm sure every reality show where you know these like oh well let's have you like four girls all sit together and talk trash about this other girl or like they tell us your your opinions on this person or they clearly you can hear sometimes they take audio from one scene and input it into another scene especially when they're doing like the coming up and the previews they'll have audio clipped together like five different sentences to make it sound like they said something they never even said and then you watch the episode and you're like that, where is that that never even <laughs> happened <laughs> So I think it is like that where, yes, okay, the things that are happening are happening, but what are they doing to get them to do that? Or 
or they say like, oh, this person is like really into you. Like, what could you do to like really show them that you're interested in them? Like trying to like just stir up like, we know that they're not, The Bachelor's not actually interested in them. So they're going to go to their, their hotel room and make this big grand gesture. And then they're like, yeah, I'm not into you. And they send him home or whatever. Just to like see the heartbreak, like, oh, I just got my, you know, I was all worked up and so excited about it. So that's what I think of with this, like, especially in the interviews with Mary, it's like, so tell us about this. And like kind of egging her on a little bit and, and all of them, like, how do we get them to cry on camera? How do we get them to get mad? How do we get them to swear and yell at each other on camera? How do we amp up the paranoia? Like, what things can we do? not with the people but just like like I think of like paranormal activity like if that was real like if I was the producer I'd be like throwing stuff or like making noises just to like have people <laughs> you know on edge a little bit more and I think that's probably they're like how can we do this yeah yeah and they would you know the family would have an interaction and then the cameraman would just like appear in the doorway <laughs> yeah and I was like oh okay that feels genuine <laughs> and they'd be like no keep talking just keep talking I'm just gonna zoom in on your face <laughs> you the one scene where they're all watching tv and yeah. they're like oh yeah make it seem like this is normal and they're like this is not normal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is not natural for us at all. Yeah. Uh, but what do you think of the one producer giving Mary a camera? Do you think he really cared about her and like had the intent that like, oh, maybe this will help you out? Or he's like, she's really close to her sister, so she's going to get some good shots that we won't be able to get. I think it was a combination. Like, he he probably had a soft spot for her because she's a little girl, and she's being genuine when, like, no one else really is. So he probably kind of felt bad. I think it was to distract her because she said she was constantly in that confessional, like, trying to talk to them and interact with them. Uh, so that it was probably a little bit of a, a distraction. Like, here, kid, go take this. But I'm sure it crossed his mind that this, you know, the sisters would have a close relationship and that Mary would get some good stuff, especially because Mary kept being like, oh, Marjorie did this creepy thing and this creepy thing and this creepy thing. So they were probably hoping that she would catch some of that instead of all the secondhand storytelling that they were getting. But would you believe an eight-year-old if they're like, yeah, I saw my sister climb up the wall or she disappeared or like whatever. I'd be like, okay, honey. <laughs> what? We need to stop giving you caffeine before bed. <laughs> I think that was another reason why she was given the camera. Um, it's, I forget the guy's name, the camera guy's name. Tim or Tom, perhaps? I, I wanted... Something like that. Let's go with that. So... <laughs> That I, I think, guy. Yeah, I think that he was maybe really like, it was cut in the thirds. 33% really cared about Mary. Because he did mention that at one point saying, your mom gonna let you stay up and watch this? This is not right. Even, But I'm in it. Yeah, but this part you don't need to see. But the other 66.67% was like, there's a chance at good television here. Because, you know, she is, she does have that relationship. And she can, she she can get into places that, that we can't, she won't be noticed. The eight-year-old gets ignored, you know, a lot of the time. And they get privy to a lot of conversations that mommy and daddy have that maybe they shouldn't hear. Because that's just the nature of being an eight-year-old. And I think that another, you know, that another piece of it was, well, she's feeling kind of bad. She's not feeling as included, you know, here. You're part of the process and that's making her feel good. But I think the majority of it was... You know, this is a this is a chance to catch something good, and it did. Yeah, yeah paid off. His name was Ken, by the way. Ah, <laughs> not even close. <laughs> not even a T name, but a three letter dude name. I was close. Now, this might not be something that you have as a question, but I just want to bring up really quickly something I would ask the author if he was there, as far as the name choices for the husband and wife specifically, because um, John and Sarah and. The roles they play, like we just talked about how John was like the Reverend, we gotta have faith in this, fix everything. John was part of the intersanctum of apostles. You know, he was described as the, the disciple that Jesus loved. He was specifically marked for that because there was an inner core of three out of the 12, James, John, and Peter. And he was just the one. Okay. So that's, I wonder if he chose that name on purpose. And Sarah, Sarah was Abraham's wife who laughed in God's face when he said, oh, you're going to have a baby. She was like 90 something years old. So she was the skeptic, the doubter. And then all of a sudden this miracle's like thrust upon her. So I wonder if he chose that name on purpose. 
I would, I would say that he did everything intentionally. You have to give the author the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it'd be a very weird coincidence if he didn't do that on purpose. I mean, everything with the religious aspect and everything, it all seems intentional. But at, but as I was reading that and thinking these thoughts in my head, I, I also thought back to when I was a POW in high school in, you know, in literary, literary classes. Wait, question, question. What does POW seem like? POW means I'm in an English class. I can't get out of it. I have to take this freaking class. Oh. Being taught by a priest or a nun because I went to Catholic school. And, um, you know, you're reading some historical novel and they're talking about the interpretation and the author meant this and the author meant that. Well, I'm thinking Hemingway's dead. How do you know what he thought? You know, um, could you just be reading this into yourself? And, and the author himself would say, hey, I never thought of that <laughs> as uh, far as their own work. So I was wondering if that was me doing that with this author or not. See, that's the same as like artwork. You go and it's like some splashes on a canvas and they're like this is a metaphor for blah 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 like all these people looking at at the artwork come up with like these super intense like meanings behind it and i've taken art classes and actually have a minor in studio art and half the time i was like just experimenting with different styles like i had like a bouncy ball and like the pattern of the, the bouncy ball in a room was the the paint strokes that I took. There was no like deep meaning <laughs> or story, but part of the assignment was that you had to like come up with this like essay long, like deep, you know, whatever. And it's like, no, that's no, it looks nice. That's that's the real purpose. And so, yeah, I think a lot of times we do that with, especially like poems and like artwork and like shorter pieces, novels sometimes, but we really do like try to think that everything was intentional and like have some like deep meaning for everything, even when it may or may not be the case. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, well, names are such an easy place to be intentional that I think it's entirely possible that he was like, what biblical names could I choose that seem like, oh, this is just John and Sarah, generic white people. And like, but actually, once you finish the book, you're like, oh, wait a second, John the Apostle, which I, would, I wouldn't have picked up on. I was just like, mm -hmm. these are just some generic names. I did feel like John was, you know, it was a religious name. A lot of people who are Christian name their child John or have a middle name John. It's also just a really common, common name. Mm -hmm. uh, Sarah... I had no idea that that was related to Christianity at all. I'm like, that's just a very yeah, she's like a major name. player. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, so I mean, shows how much I know. I feel like there's so few women in the Bible that the female biblical names are more obvious to me because there were so few women in there, and it made me mad when I went through confirmation class and I got mad about it. <laughs> I know. I was like, where are the women? I know Mary. There's a Mary and there, a Mary. There's another Mary. There's a Ruth. There's a Rebecca. There's you know Sarah. Oh. Well, I know. My mom's gonna be so proud. <laughs> <laughs> Noah's wife had a weird name. I can't remember her. Whatever. I can't think of it either. Did he have a kid named Ham? Yes. Oh, Ham? I'm so glad that never caught on. <laughs> Wouldn't Sham, that be funny if that came and back in style? Oh my god. I feel like now we're cycling back to like the older generation. Yeah. Like Ruth is actually coming back and yeah. like those kinds of olds. Ham. Ham. Let me add that to my list. Well, I'm waiting for somebody <laughs> to make it a bendigo. Oh. Who is a bendigo? Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's a there's a story in the Bible about um, these three Jewish guys, and they're, they're living in the area that's being ruled by you know the Roman Empire. And someone who is anti-Jewish says, "Man, we these guys are. We have to get rid of these guys. We have to you know we have to take take them out." So they talk the emperor into putting out an edict saying, "You have to bow down to my image. You know, put a statue of him every place." But of course, according to the rules, these guys are not going to do that. But they're actually friends with the emperor. They have a good relationship and everything. And the emperor, unknown to him, to that rule, put out that edict saying anybody would be put to death. And they said, well, we're not bowing down, so put us to death. And the, the emperor was really broken up about it, but he can't break his own rules. So they the way they killed people then was they just put you in a man-sized furnace, burn you up. So they got the furnace going. These guys are happy. They're going to be getting rid of these guys. And they put them in a the furnace, and of course in the furnace is a way that you can look in while people think are being burned up in there. But these guys are not being consumed by the fire. They're just standing in there, standing around. And these guys did not know they were going to get saved. They say, hey, we're just following the rules. We're going to be faithful. If we die, we die. That's just, you know, the way we roll. 
But when they looked in there, they saw actually four figures in there. There was one in there amongst them. And in the Bible, they describe them as a son of God. But, you know, the general, the general scholars say that that was Jesus before his time actually walking around on earth. That was in there with them and protected them through the fire and they came out alive. No problem. Oh, wow. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Wow. Yeah, those names should have caught on. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I feel like we have to talk about, because we pick books based off of strong female main characters, so two things that I want to discuss. One is, it was written by a man, so do you feel like he accurately portrayed women? I have some issues with how he portrayed an eight-year-old. I feel like some parts weren't really realistic, like when Mary goes up to um, her sister and, and pokes her breasts and is like, boing, boing, and like... That's not something an eight-year-old would do, but... (laughs) (laughs) I wondered about that when I read it. Like, yeah, not quite. I don't... Maybe, like, that's what an eight-year-old boy would think that he wanted to do, but not a little eight-year-old girl, I don't... But anyway, so do you think, one, that he portrayed women appropriately in two. Do you think that Mary counts as a strong female lead character? I think Mary, just for the fact that she was an eight-year-old girl, did not have a lot of agency. Her parents were in control a lot. Her sister had some agency uh, because she was kind of controlling the whole situation, driving that forward. But Mary really didn't impact the plot significantly. She even wasn't really in control when she put the poison in the sauce. Like, that was Marjorie acting through her. So if we're looking at strong female character as strength of agency, I don't think she was that strong. I think she was a full character. She wasn't a flat character. I I think there was an arc to her, but not necessarily, like, just the child. I think there was growth from child to adult. Um, I, I don't think she was that strong, though. Even as an adult? Even as an adult, because she still wasn't really... She still didn't have that much agency. She wasn't affecting the plot in any way and making choices that drove the story forward or not forward. Well, I think in some ways she did because she's the one telling the story and she can alter. I think her agency comes in the fact that she's the only one that really knows the truth of what happened. So she has a lot of control over what is portrayed from now on in in this biography, in her blog. So I think in that way she does, but I don't know. She just feels, she feels disturbed to, <laughs> to me as well. <laughs> I don't know if she has some sort of mental illness as well, or if it's just the trauma that she went through that's impacting her strange coping mechanisms and her um, her distancing herself in that way. But I would still call her strong in that way. I don't want to say that every male author can't fully write a woman successfully because I don't believe that. I think that I think that you can, but I, I yeah I think more it was just. So on the scenes as a kid and how they were interpreted didn't make sense to me from a girl perspective. Yeah. I think maybe part of it was that I felt like Mary was written younger than eight. And it could be because when the author was eight and he's a boy, that's how it is. But girls mature a little bit faster. So an eight-year-old girl would be a little bit farther along in development and so would act a little older. Yeah, writing children, I feel like, is really tricky because at some points I felt like the thing she was saying and doing was older than eight. And then other times, it's like, you're acting like you're four. (laughs) What are you doing? Well, I am going to abstain from commenting on whether you got women accurate or not, because that's something I'm studying. But as far as um, the strength of the, is it a strong female character? I think that Mary and Marjorie add up to a strong female character. You have to combine the two. Because we're looking at two different time frames. And in the one time frame, Marjorie is total control. She's manipulating everybody and everything is what's happening. And dictating the circumstances for everybody around them. She basically dictated that the fact that that show was there, really. Um, what happens on this show, the fact that it was a hit. <laughs> it was due to her. There's no show without her. And 
in the future, Mary is dictating everything that's happening as far as being allowing the interview with that with the author and dictating those circumstances. She's got a beach house because of what she's done after the fact. She's going to be contributing to an online magazine because of what she's done after the fact. And she doesn't even have to use her real name. She's, uh, I would say that she's a strong character in that right. But um, as far as writing kids and what kids would do and that sort of thing, I kind of agree with you as far as how that eight-year-old was written. I, I wonder if Paul has any daughters and how old they might be because... I'll, I'll, I'll say to you right now that, um, you're about to have a family. And as you, your kid grows, when your child is 10, you'll be able to write an eight, nine, and 10 year old. It'll be mm-hmm. easy because you'll be in it. Right. I've, I've raised two kids. I've got a grandchild that's 18. So if I had to write some kids, boys and girls, I think I would be able to do a halfway decent job because it was thrust upon me. <laughs> For clarification, Kate is not the one who's about to have a family. <laughs> As I should say, Amber. <laughs> you just you have cats. I just have cats. There are no babies here. For, for Kate's family. For Kate's family. <laughs> yeah, I think it would be hard. I've worked with children a lot, so I, I feel comfortable. Like I've mainly worked with kids like three through five, but I also have experience working with fourth and fifth graders, which is that eight to ten range. So I feel confident knowing like what they're capable of and obviously each child has their own abilities but I think it would be so difficult to write about a child if you hadn't been around a child at that age like he didn't do a horrible job at it by any means I mean I think it was pretty strong in most parts but I've read some books where they have like a three-year-old saying these like absurd things and you're like what what three-year-old have you talked to that's like like talking about like the meaning of the universe like, you know, like, <laughs> like what, what kind of savant is this child yeah. you know is this sci-fi what, what is this well i think that um i think in the book that there were some areas where he did a fairly good job with an eight-year-old girl as far as what she was saying and everything and, and some of those were little turns of, of phrases and how she saw things was kind of entertaining because i noticed that when she was describing other people she said something like he was too tall or his his eyes were too close together as if she was drawing them herself. She was making these people and they, some of them came out wrong. But some of the things, like you said, were, you know, she did and said that were immature for an eight year old. Cause I think some people who don't hang around eight year olds are surprised at how sophisticated they can be and hanging and hanging out with adults. And I'll tell you this one thing for free. All you people out there in blogland who are about to have a kid know that they are microphones and speakers. They catch everything. Don't think that you're going to be talking around your kid. They're not going to get it. They'll get it faster mm-hmm. than you want them to. Yeah, especially because her older sister was like so much older than her. She'd be uh-huh. exposed to a lot more older kid things. Yeah, because she was right. eight and her sister was 14. Yeah. yeah. So six years is a lot. And I, yeah, I was mainly surprised by some of like the kind of tantrum type things she did. Like by eight, unless... They're emotionally immature. Most eight-year-old girls are not throwing, like, tantrums, really. They might... They'll get upset, definitely. But the way that it was described sometimes is like, "Eh, that's a little dramatic. I mean, to be fair, they did have some crazy stuff happening. So who's to say that... If you've got a camera crew in your house and your sister's possessed by a demon, that you're not going to freak out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Probably, probably would, yeah. Well, I can say this. If that's 18 year, if that's eight-year-old behavior, eight-year-old girl, I've got an eight-year-old girl in my home right now, my granddaughter. And when she gets upset about something, it's not really a tantrum. She reminds me of her mother at 14. That's how they get mad. They start <laughs> yelling at you, say stuff about you that you don't like. <laughs> and they're very sophisticated in their expression of anger. And they want you to know it. Mm-hmm. So nobody's laying on the floor, beating their fists on the rug. It's different than that. Mm-hmm. It's that emotional intelligence. Like, I know how to get under your skin. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what are your overall thoughts? Would you recommend it? What would you rate it? Would you read his other books? He's got one, I think it's like The Cabin at the End of the World, or something like that, where I think it's even more popular than this book. Um, I might give it I might give it three out of five stars because I didn't read it as horror. I read it as like sadly horrifying and like a sad child abuse book. So I was like all ready for like 
Halloween feels, and then I was like, oh no, I'm gonna watch child abuse. Watch, read, sorry, mentally watch. <laughs> and so it, it wasn't the book I expected and was was promised by like the summary on the on the outside. It's an ebook, so it's not on the back, but you know. So I it didn't meet the expectations that the I'm gonna call it the publisher's fault that the publisher set for me. And therefore I think it should have been marketed a little differently, because it, it was supposed to be a little more ghosty, a little more maybe demony and and because I read it as straight up schizophrenia, no demons, it was just sad. So I would probably not read his other book because I'd be like, Well, I think there's promises that won't be met again. Well, for my part I was anticipating a two-star experience with the book because of the genre. It's just not something I'm into. But I was su surprised and pleased on my experience with the book. I would recommend it to friends of mine who like deep psychological or disturbing situations, that sort of thing, or maybe even horror. So I would recommend that book to them. I don't know if I would pick up another one of his books necessarily, and you know, unless I had to. And I give it, uh, instead of a two-star rating, I give it a three-star rating. Solid three. Maybe three and a half. Three and a half. I thought it was entertaining. It kept me hooked, so I read it pretty quickly. But I agree that it did not meet what I was expecting. I don't like to know anything about a book before I read it, so I didn't read the back. I didn't read the summary. All I knew was that it's called Head Full of Ghosts, so I wasn't thinking exorcism. I was thinking ghost story, and that's why I was really excited to read it, because I love spooky horror stories, not so much like gory horror, but it wasn't ghosty. I mean, I guess you could call a demon a ghost, but there's one, not plural. <laughs> yeah. When she did the maple syrup story at first, where like people were drowned by the syrup, or, yeah, or whatever it was, or molasses, I was like, "Ooh, a ghost that died there told her this story. This is so cool!" And then it never, it never got that exciting ever again. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I would say because my expectations weren't met. I'm torn between a three and a four because I feel like it kept my interest so that's why I would lean more towards a four but then ultimately based on the story and how I feel like it resonated with me I would probably go more towards the three. I personally would be more willing to read his other books because I feel like they're more highly rated, and and I, I think this one was first. The other one came out last year, so maybe it has a different feel to it, but it's not going to be something I pick up right away. It would be maybe next year around Halloween time when I'm looking for, for something a little bit spooky, but if anyone has any really good spooky stories, send them my way, because I find it very difficult to find a scary book, and that's what I'm always looking for. Like, I love... I don't like scary movies as much. I love scary movies, but I love scary books, and it's so hard to find a book that legitimately makes me feel scared. Like, people talk about, like, oh, I couldn't read this by myself. Like, I haven't had that experience. So somebody send me your scariest story that you can think of, because <laughs> I am ready. I want it. Um, but I would still recommend it. I know someone else in our in our group, Leanne, she read the book and she loved it. She gave it five stars and she's ready to read all of his other books and she writes horror. So I know that there are a lot of people out there that would really enjoy this story. All right, so next month we will be discussing On the Come Up by Angie Thomas. So make sure you read that ahead of time so you can listen and participate in our next spoiler-filled discussion. And we're really excited about that strong female main character. So thank you all for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Judging More Than Just the Cover podcast. I'm Amber Gregg. Join us next month to see what we thought of another best-selling book with a strong female main character. The chat doesn't end here. Let us know your thoughts in the comment area or connect with us on social media. Enjoyed the show? Share the love. Give us a review, like, follow, and a share with your friends. Find more reviews, discussions, and articles related to publishing, writing, and editing on judgingmorethanjustthecover.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, peace out. Oh, 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 oh,